0: in the show notes. CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September 2024. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community. I will be there with my co-host Catherine Schweit from Stop the Killing, so come and join us, and don't forget to quote Ferris for your special 10% discount. Head to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today, and that discount code again, Ferris as in my last name, Ferris like the wheel, Ferris like Bueller, whatever way you choose to remember it. Don't forget to put it in and you'll get 10% off. Hi listeners, this is a bonus episode and the final in the series. If you've enjoyed the content, then make sure you've subscribed wherever you listen to your podcasts and have also followed Conning the Con on Instagram and Facebook, so you can be the first to hear about the upcoming series. And as ever, if you'd like more information on how to deal with stress and trauma, visit Dr. Muir's website at drsophiemuir.com or Emma's website, thebreatheffect.com. There is a wealth of information, tips, tools, courses, and retreats, literally something for everyone. And finally, thank you for joining us on this journey. Please do help us spread the word whatever way works for you, like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing on social media, or simply telling a friend. You just never know. Your share might be the one that stops a loved one falling victim to the world's complete oversupply of con artists. Something is creeping. Nelson Mandela once said, No one truly knows a nation until one has been inside its jails. A nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. But if you've lived on the right side of the law and the closest you get to prison is an episode of Orange is the New Black, then really who stops and thinks about whether the system of justice and hopefully rehabilitation is actually working to protect you and the community as a whole? I know I certainly hadn't spent much time thinking about it until Andrew Tonks came on the scene.
1: At the heart of the episode is this question. Does our system have the resources to send people like Andrew back out into our community rehabilitated so we are protected from repeat offenders? I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Shadow dark upon Moving
0: slow and stretching tall And her hands hold a that's cold A shadow dark upon the wall Moving slow and stretching tall And out to the mountains her
1: gaze is pulled This whole story has two sides to it. It has my side as experience of the victim. And there's this piece of criminal and not maybe just Andrew but any criminal and how they are put into this prison system and how they are or are not rehabbed and it was something that sat with both both Sarah and I as part of this process of wondering what happens to them in there are they going to come out better worse or just the same and what influence do we have in that what is happening in our communities in our prison systems that is helping these people turn their life around and I think big big questions was is that even possible for someone that has conned and it's why we wanted to sit down with Sophie and ask her from her side and her experience working in the criminal system what's going right what's going wrong and what can we do better So
0: we're going to begin this episode at what really is the beginning of the end, for Andrew at least, because when he's arrested, he spends almost nine months in remand, which is a kind of limbo land, waiting to either come to trial or go to sentencing, and that depends on the plea that the person has made. So I asked Dr Muir if during that time in remand, are inmates just spinning their wheels or is there any kind of rehabilitation path available to them from the outset?
2: Yeah, I've never worked in a remand context, but my understanding of when someone is on remand is basically just a holding time where they're just sort of waiting for their sentencing and they're not necessarily engaging in any specific offence-focused work or anything like that because they don't obviously have um, like a rehabilitative pathway or plan yet because they haven't been convicted or sentenced. So they can do kind of, I think, some general like life skills programs, I think, might be offered to them, but nothing specific in terms of rehabilitation at that stage. It can be quite a significant period of time, and some people, that time will be counted as part of their sentence, but for others, the sentence will start once they've been actually sentenced, so it varies from person to person.
0: So what happens when they're sentenced and they move into the general population?
2: When someone is sentenced, in terms of how they're placed in prison, there's a lot of different prisons and then they're, they're sort of organized according to security class level and then the type of intervention someone might need. So some prisons have special treatment units for violence or sexual violence or other units will just be, like you say, general populations. There'll be a mix of different offending types. The way that someone will be placed will like often mostly depend on their security class. And that's determined not so much by their level of risk in the community, but their level of risk in prison. So how much of a danger are they in prison? How tightly do they need to be controlled to protect themselves in prison from themselves or from other prisoners? So someone who has like dishonesty offences, who might be more that conman type, they're likely to be placed in a, a very sort of low or minimum security unit because unless they have a violent history, they're not going to be a risk in prison. So they'll have quite a lot of freedom. It's often the unit will be quite a, quite a large outdoor unit. There'll be kind of like typically you'd see the housing around the outside with a big like courtyard in the middle and they can be free to kind of roam in and out of their, their room and into the courtyard and interact with each other. They might have some work inside the unit or kind of out in the bigger prison yards. But these units have quite like a therapeutic feel to them. And they are a lot more relaxed than, say, the maximum security units where you've got prisoners who will only be allowed to, to mix or go into yards for a very restricted period each day. They'll have a ratio of three to one guards when, they, when they're moved anywhere. They'll only be allowed to mix with a very select few others. So it, it really depends on their level of risk in prison. How much crime do we have that's at that level? Is it a surprising amount? What I can tell you is that a lot of the people who are maximum security are very young, like 21 and under. Like it's it's really scary. And that's actually the population I worked with primarily was the guys in maximum security. Because typically you'd be wanting the people who are quite violent to be going into a group program to treat their violence. Because delivery of psychological support is obviously much more efficient if you can do it in a group. But if you're a maximum security class, you can't interact in a group setting safely. So you need one-to-one psych intervention. So the psych team mainly works in that maximum security space with the the men one-on-one. Very rarely was a client older than myself. Um, So mostly young guys, and there's a big push uh, at the moment to try and target that group and actually help them reduce their security class so they can get access to programs and resources it's it's scary it's sad as well
0: why do you think that age group
2: why why is that age group so prevalent just you see that with violence like people who are younger are typically more violent they have more like they have less self-control less self-regulation so they'll be more impulsive, more reckless. They're also the ones who are susceptible to the gang influences. So they'll have the older gangs' leaders instructing them to perform violent acts. And so they are the ones who tend to get involved in the most incidents in prison, whereas the older someone gets or the more senior they move up in the gang, they might be less involved in that. They don't have to prove themselves so much. But also as people approach the older age group, they do sort of age out of violence in terms of like testosterone levels and those things you see it, you see a decline after the age of about 40
1: And now a word from our sponsors It's Sunday, January 19th. Nineteenth. For nearly a year, my friend Arya dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door.
0: There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz?
1: I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai, and then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio, available now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What privileges do they have? It depends on, obviously, again, security class. But if you are in that lower end, you definitely have a lot more freedom in terms of being able to roam around the unit and kind of potentially have work privileges in or outside of the wire. Typically have certain hours of the day that you'd be allotted like phone calls. It's not unlimited or anything like that. There's often access to to TVs. You can lose those privileges if you are involved in like an incident that will be used as a a punishment, I suppose. But yeah, typically you would be allowed access to those things.
0: More specifically then for people who con, what would it take for a serial conman to actually stop being a serial conman?
2: So when someone enters prison, they get given a risk score. So their risk of re-offending or being reconvicted. And that score really determines what kind of treatment or rehabilitation they'll be receiving. And their risk level depends on their gender. It depends on how old they were when they first offended, what kind of convictions they have, how many, what is their current offense, how long have they been in the system or in prison, and how long have they had between sentences? Like, have they demonstrated an ability to live in the community safely for extended periods of time? So, someone who is a high risk would, or very high risk, would be someone who was very young at their first age of conviction, has a lot of violence offences, has a really high volume of just general offences, has been in the system a long time, and has had very limited time between sentences. So, that person would be in the the really high risk band. And then, someone who has had like a couple of of offences of a non severe nature, who was a bit older at their time of first conviction, and who's been able to live in the community for extended periods of time, that person's going to have a low risk level. So that's kind of the two different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, in terms of rehabilitation, so if you're thinking like people who would get psychological support, those would be the ones who are right up in that top tier risk band. People with violence and sexual violence, they'd be eligible to either go into a group with a psychologist or one-to-one treatment. And if someone falls more in the moderate risk band, they would be eligible to do programs run, like groups run by program facilitators. So not psychologists, but they're sort of focused on similar targets like thoughts, feelings, behaviors, motivation, that sort of thing. If someone falls in the lower risk band, they don't get specific fence-focused treatment. So they might be able to participate in kind of general life skills programs that might be run by different organizations who come in and volunteer or that sort of thing in prison. But they're not going to be doing specific offence focused rehabilitation.
1: So more than likely a con man isn't going to get the psych input that maybe would be needed to help them to stop offending.
2: Yeah, the only case that someone would be would be the case that they also have a really high volume of offences, have been in prison a long time, have got you know additional violence offences, for example. That's fascinating from the point of view of like the,
1: even the judge sort of saying like I hope you learn and can train when you get the help you need when you're in jail, and not actually been able to get that when they are there, and if even if you wanted it, is it there or is it only if you're in that risk bracket because of fund- funding?
2: Yeah, I mean psychologists are so such a small resource in prison. You know they. The, they can barely get to the people in the very high risk band, let alone people who are lower down in that spectrum. So it is surprising, I think, to a lot of people that there isn't anything specific. The way all prisons work actually is that the the intensity of rehabilitative program you're given matches your risk level. So that's, a, that's across any prison in any country that uses this model. And the research does show that if you give intensive treatment to someone who's low risk, it's, it's not necessarily effective or it can actually increase their risk, particularly if that's in like a group setting where you're exposing them to other people with antisocial values and, you know, they can get ideas if they're sitting there and hearing about others offending. So you don't want to necessarily give intensive group treatment to someone who was who a low risk already. Is there part of the experience of just being in jail that is enough to put you on the straight and narrow? I wouldn't say that. That was how prisons used to work on the basis that prison is punishment and people learn from punishment, but that's not how people learn. So that punishment model is, is long gone. It's it's not effective. People learn by rewards, not not punishment. So no, I wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily say that that would be enough to rehabilitate someone, just the threat of going into prison.
0: So it sounds like quite depressing. It doesn't sound like it's very effective and that there's nothing that would actually change people's behaviours through the process, and then they're just released back into the community. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, you know, unless if someone's lack of community support was a reason that they might have offended, then perhaps when they're in prison they might get access to different organisations that would give them, like, You know, whether that's religious organisations, work skills, that sort of thing, that's not specific offence-focused intervention, but it is building up like a more pro-social life. So access to those kind of community resources might be helpful or education as well, if that's been a barrier to someone having a pro-social life. So, yeah, while not specific offence-focused treatment, it might reduce their risk by giving them some of these life skills.
0: When an offender comes out of prison, is there any support there to stop them falling back into old patterns uh, and stop them reoffending again?
2: So, everyone who's released will be on parole. Um, so, they will be assigned a probation officer. They will have to report into the probation centre. They'll have certain release requirements like no drugs and alcohol, appropriate accommodation, that sort of thing. So, they will have someone who's checking up to ensure that they are living in accordance with those requirements, but not necessarily intensive support. It really depends, again, on their level of risk as well.
0: I imagine getting a job once you've got a criminal record, it's very difficult. So how are these people supporting themselves when they go back into the community?
2: Yeah, a lot of them get income support. I think when someone is released from prison, they get a certain amount of money in that first week. It's not much though. I don't I think I remember reading last year there was articles about it that it hadn't been increased in like 10 years or, or something so it's it's not a large amount of money. I think it was you know a couple of hundred dollars in the first week something like that. I don't know if it's been changed now since that since then but it's pretty pretty bleak in terms of resourcing. In terms of accommodation you'd be looking at like shared housing typically and that's really quite limited. It's it's actually very hard for at the moment for corrections to find appropriate housing for people that just doesn't really exist and so then you've got people being put up in motels or other temporary accommodation and that's really hard you know for some people that does put them at increased risk because they don't have like a stable secure home to to, to work from you know it's um it's quite destabilizing the environment when they're released what is the likelihood of a con man offending again whether someone who cons reoffends is going to depend on their history you'd be looking at how pervasive their conning has been in the past like how long have they been able to live without doing that before in the community so it's really about their history of doing it. it's not so much a blanket rule yeah they had periods of, of being pro-social before and working in a, a normal job and supporting themselves and not exploiting other people obviously the prognosis would be a lot better than if they've just completely always lived a very parasitic life it would be quite unsurprising if they didn't reoffend again in that case.
1: When I listen to what Dr. Muir has said and reflect on what's currently happening in our system I realize how much of a gap we have and I'm sure it's not just New Zealand. But it makes me scared for the people that come back out into the community, scared for people that may be their next victims, and that they haven't had the support, the psychological support, to help them build healthy social lives that are actually going to do good in the world. I'm sure there are people that do come out and rehabilitate from, from jail and do that. But what I've heard is there isn't the system that is helping that at the moment.
0: I hope you found this bonus episode informative, and if you've had any experience that you'd like to share, then please get in touch. We have links in the show notes. We would love to hear your stories.
1: A shadow dark upon the wall, slow and stretching tall The cool. shadow dark If you liked our story, please share with family and friends And like, subscribe and review So others can learn from my lessons If you or anyone you know has been affected by something similar Please reach out for help You are not alone We've included some links in our show notes Conning the Con was made with the input of Dr. Sophie Muir And the original music is by the talented Aroha Min Something is creeping in Don't follow it down.
0: Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down.
2: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower. On the University of Texas campus, it marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
0: You're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit.
2: I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting
0: crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I have really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time. Hello my tribe of true crime addicts, it's Sarah from Conning the Con podcast here, and I imagine you and I have quite a bit in common. I am a complete true crime podcast junkie, and having had the opportunity to go to CrimeCon 2021 and meet all my fellow podcasters on podcast row, well, I was like a kid in a candy store. Not to mention all of the incredible speakers, exhibitors, authors that were also spilling the tea there all weekend long. So don't miss out on the next CrimeCon. It's in June on the 11th and 12th in London, 2022. Trust me, you don't want FOMO. Don't forget to use the code CTHEC at checkout to get your exclusive Con in the Con discount. That's C. You know, like calling the con. I can't wait to meet you all there.
2: Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons.
0: Think behind the music for the stuff we
2: love. Check out our website at two twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen
0: wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.
1: Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved
0: around historic events and people. To the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com